Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Eric Dembrayan is an artist and musician from Berkeley, California, who's based in Brooklyn, New York. He got his BFA from CalArts and his MFA from Cornell. His paintings often depict iconic musicians whose image is made from text, often lyrics from the songs of the artist. He's had shows at Freight and Volume in New York and has done a mural for Rag and Bone on their housing project wall, as well as a current mural at the White Hotel that's underway at the moment. I had a great time visiting his studio in Greenpoint and we got deep into music and art. Make sure to visit soundandvisionpodcast.com to see images of his work that we discuss in the conversation. Also, if you enjoy Sound and Vision, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps out the podcast. All right, let's get into it. Here's Eric and I in conversation. Except someone was mentioning, was it a podcast? Someone was mentioning uh, Billy Corrigan. Yeah, he's said some strange things. Like he has a, a weird quasi-spirituality. Yeah. Um, I found that the Melancholy album sounds a lot better in 2015, or did sound better in 2015 than it did in 2005. In what um, in what sense? Well, you know, ten years later, it was kind of like embarrassing, yeah. and then twenty years later, it, that aspect went away a little bit. Yeah. Um, I started to realize the quality of the production and the songs mm-hmm. and how impressive it was that he had done you know like 28 songs that were all like really well done yeah and i guess 10 years later i, I just i found it excessive and embarrassing yeah. um at the time you know he was saying things like this is going to be my sergeant pepper or pink floyd the wall <laughs> or whatever i was like oh god come on you know? yeah but my friend thought that they had squandered the title Siamese Dream on the previous record because it would have been much better if it was a double disc. For the, oh, yeah. yeah. Man, that's, I used to work, um, I was introduced to them, I used to bus tables when I was growing up at this little restaurant down the street, and the, the cooks were really into Smashing Pumpkins. Uh-huh. And for me, it was, like, it was kind of the only alternative thing that they liked. Yeah. Like everything else was real either heavy metal or classic and at that point i was kind of over that i guess i was kind of into newer things so the the segue was was uh smashing pumpkins and they would listen to it all the time yeah i <laughs> so mean I, it's interesting because the the narrative is kind of like the grunge threw off this overproduced rock but billy corgan's a shredder you know yeah. but then he's got butch vig producing the first two records who did you know Nevermind. yeah so it couldn't be more grunge in one sense but it's also got a lot of those, you know, bloated isms, yeah, seventies uh, rock things that I that I actually really like. I think the one thing that um, keeps me from, you know, fully embracing it is that he sounds a little bit like Big Bird, you know, oh, yeah. vocally. So if That's you like, true. if you like listen to it and imagine like Big Bird is singing it, oh, it, it's a really bizarre <laughs> twist. Never, never thought of that, but yeah. now that you mention it, a similar timbre, like a yeah, a similar voice, just putting that feathered arm around you and. Yeah, telling you how he's all by himself. Right, it's squawking a, about sad bird. <laughs> so, uh, what other what other music from that era were you into? Um, in the nineties, yeah. I, I I got on board the shoegaze thing quite nice. quite hard, and also the a lot of the Brit pop stuff. Yeah, 
Um, I was there. Yeah. We're we're of a, the same generation, I think. Yeah, I think we're so. Born and maybe a couple years apart. But. Yeah. Yeah. So you were into you were kind of like an Anglophile. You got into you yeah. under, you understood what knackered was as a result of yeah your, your interest in blur. That, that's tired, right? Yeah. 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 Um, my favorite of the Britpop bands is Pulp. Um, um, and when I first heard them, it just tore my head off. Um, Jarvis Cocker. Yeah. Right, is the lead singer. Yeah. And I think the first song I heard was Underwear. And, um, you know, I had this sort of crooner quality and it was a little bit perverse and, you know, subversive, but it had this also this grandiosity that I really responded to. And yeah. somehow I got mistaken and thought it was a band called Gene. And I went out and bought their record and they were just a really bad Smiths knockoff. Um, Gene, like the name? Yeah, G-E-N-E. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it, it turned out that Pulp wasn't even available in America yet. And then I heard Common People, and that that was just you know a revelation. Wait, when did you realize that it wasn't what you thought it was? I think it took me a couple of weeks. I mean, after buying the Gene album, I'm like, oh, is it this song? I think it was this song. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it was this song. No, and then you know, those were the days when you could make a mistake like that and you weren't instantly corrected. Yeah, I had Yes's record. It was the one that was, uh, it had Owner of a Lonely Heart. 90125. Yeah, that yeah. one. I had that record, but I thought it was Judas Priest. You thought they had done Owner of a Lonely Heart? Yeah. Like, that I thought I cool. was listening to Judas Priest. Oh, okay. I don't know how I yeah, screwed it that up. Yeah, that would be a very pop Judas Priest. Yeah. Although, they're not without their, you know, pop aspects. Yeah. One of their 80s records, I think, has a song called Turbo Lover. It's, it's got those guitars that are almost like synthesizers, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I, I for some reason I had no idea. But it was kind of nice thinking that I was rocking out the Judas Priest. Because I, I never went into heavy metal. Like, I never got into the real hard stuff. Right. I kind of, you know, I would do the Poison, Cinderella's, sure. and White Snakes of the World. Cinderella. Over Megadeth. First CD I ever bought. Oh, really? Yeah, Long Cold Winter. I had the 345s oh. from it, too. Um, don't know what you got till it's gone. Yeah, I revisited that one recently. That was your first record? Uh, no, my first record, I think, would be Weird Al. Uh, Weird Al in 3D. I had the vinyl of that. I think, that, I think that's like 84, 84, maybe, with Eat It. Wait, isn't that... Oh, I was going to say, wasn't that Thriller's year? 84? Uh, I think Thriller is either 82 or 83. Um, but Weird Al in 3D was the record. Um, but then I got the first Weird Al album, which had like another one, Rides the Bus. So I, was always, I, I guess I like the parodies more. I really didn't like Michael Jackson growing up. I know it's kind of a sin to admit that. And it took me years to appreciate Prince, actually. I didn't really appreciate him until 1994, which was a full 10 years after Purple Rain. Yeah. And it was the song, The Beautiful Ones, that made me go, oh, my God, this guy's incredible. Right. Um, but back to first records, yeah, I, don't, I had an older brother, which, you know, some people will always say is like, you know, the gateway. That's like you're yeah. lucky if you have one of those. and. He, Kiss was like a one of the first things that struck me, like outside of um, the Beatles and Dylan things that my parents would play. Right. Um, but I, I started drawing Kiss actually when I was probably six. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I my first record was. Um, see, I think it was 1984, because that I remember. You know, the kid, the little Cupid with the Van Halen like sign, and then yes, he, he's had a cigarette. cigarettes. Yeah. yeah. And I remember holding that, and I, I think that was the first one I ever got, or maybe it was the first one I bought at the store with my parents. Okay. Because I did have Thriller, and uh -huh. I don't know which one came first. 
but Thriller was so important to me, and sorry to go against you. I mean, you know. Yeah, no, it, I, no it's, an, ama- it's an amazing record. I think something, I think even as like a six or seven year old or whatever, I, I resented, I was like, you know, going to go against the grain or, you know, um, <laughs> rise above the, right. yeah. Yeah, go against, go against the, the Michael Jackson machine, which was huge in Rolling. Yeah. Well, I saw the um, the Thriller video at the, at the mall. They had these mini rides and games and stuff like that, and people would have birthday parties. And they had a big screen and a projector, I guess, and they were playing Thriller there. That's the first time I saw it. And it was crazy. The video. Yeah, it was yeah. so long. No, that was incredible. It was I, so I, long. I, yeah, that, I couldn't, you know, I'd have to be a, you know, a real jerk to not fall for that video. That was yeah. incredible. And I, I think the Captain EO ride at Disneyland, I don't know if you ever heard that. Mm, I never. It was an attraction, but it was like this movie that you had, you know, vibrations and things. Oh, it, yeah, it was yeah. as though you were going on a Simulator. space journey with Michael Jackson. With, you know, wow. Original music. You know. Yeah. But that vinyl, opening it up, and it had that centerfold with him and the tiger. Okay. I used to listen to the record and just put it in my front door. We had screen doors. Yeah. And I would just stick it up. No one was walking by, but I would hold it up just to show right. people. Now playing. This is how awesome it is in, in here. So wait, the tiger was on the inside? Yeah, I believe. Because it's him just reclining. He's reclining. Maybe the tiger was on the outside. I can't remember. Because I've seen both. No, I think it's not on the... Yeah, I think it's just him on the outside, and then the inside is... Has the tiger? Yeah, he looked good then. Yeah, yeah, for it was sure. pretty impressive as a young kid. That, yeah, that, that image and that music was awesome. Yeah, it was really good. So, mentioning Disneyland, why don't we talk about? Because you're from the West Coast, right? Yeah, I'm um, East Bay. I was born in Berkeley and raised in um, a tiny little town inside of Oakland. How was that? That was good. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're defying the odds of the people from the west coast who are coming out to the east coast and setting up shop here for a long time right how long have you been here almost 16 years do you feel the pull to go back yeah i i mean it used to be really hard um i the longer i've been here the more comfortable i've been here the more ties i've you know made and bonds i've created um but you know people are saying that the art world is moving to la in a lot of ways um Mm -hmm. i still find la kind of intense um When I, I was there in the spring, and we did a week in LA and a week up north, and I always just kind of breathe a sigh of relief once I get up north. I, I find LA like almost more intense than New York. It's a hustle. It's a different kind of intensity, right? It's a, a little more spaced out, but it's just as intense. Yeah, I feel the kind of post-apocalyptic Blade Runner thing a little stronger there. Yeah, yeah, and the traffic. Like the never-ending circuit board that is human sprawl. Yeah. Under the guise of space and, and breathable air, right. which you do in a sense, but but the, the connectivity, I mean, I don't know, as being an East Coast person, the idea that you have to drive everywhere and you can't just walk around is really weird. Yeah. You know. And the, the, the cliche is laid back, but I haven't felt, felt the laid backness there. Yeah, it's kind of a, a laid back look. Yeah. But it's, although I had some, some art world dealings there that were much more laid back than New York. Oh, really? Yeah. Like the dealers or the collectors were better yeah, to like deal the, with? Yeah, like that process. We're just a little more laid back about things. You uh-huh. know? But that was probably just a you know, personal experience or whatever. But um, Yeah. Well, I remember one of the things I heard, and this is a completely different generation, um, was someone was saying about the difference between the market was that in L.A. people would, wouldn't feel as inclined to buy something right away because they could pretty safely assume it would still be available. 
Whereas in New York, they knew if they didn't buy that piece, it's someone gone. else was going to get it. Yeah, and that's it's almost that illusion of uh, scarcity. I mean, it's not really an illusion. I mean, it's not like a Mercedes where you can just buy another one. I mean, right. you want that painting? That's the only one there is. Yeah. Well, in the school thing, the it just it seems like the schools are so much more related to the community there geographically and with you know people meeting each other since you don't have just neighborhoods like over here where there's just a bunch of different artists we could walk around to different people's studios you know it seems like there it's a little more spaced out and there's connections are being made through you know where you went to school in those communities that you meet and that's an yeah. assumption but i'm not sure if almost like case. a farm program yeah, I mean, I think leagues. that's kind of nice that the idea that you could go to school and that that would help your career. Yeah, you know? definitely. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, part of the reason you go is yeah. to meet people and to have experiences, right? Yeah, so, yeah. But the yeah the the, like the I guess coming back from there sometimes New York almost seems cozy, you know. Yeah, I'm thinking about like a Louis C.K. joke now as I say that he's you know talks about being terrified in the country and then he says you know I like New York. There's like murderers and serial killers. It's cozy, <laughs> yeah. and and they're close. They're yeah. close by. I feel like that way when I come back from Japan, I come to New York and I feel like it's real uh, green. There's uh-huh. like trees and stuff everywhere because there's yeah. certain areas of the city there where there's just, it's just building after building after building, you know. The lushness, yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's certain colors that I, I've grown to really appreciate uh, in, in, on the East Coast. It's different, Purple, like a different palette. things, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So when you went to, you went to school out there, right? Yeah, for undergrad. You went to... Um, Two Cal places. Arts? I started at UC Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. and I did a lot of music stuff there. I did kind of equal parts music and art. Um, but then I really got the painting bug and declared myself an uh, art major, and realized I wanted like a more comprehensive art school. And so I was going to go to New York Studio School and uh, tried to move here, but didn't work out. So I ended up going to the California College of the Arts, mm-hmm. uh, which was called uh, California College of Arts and Crafts back then. Uh, they dropped the crafts, but they kept the crafts <laughs> programs. Right. Um, but that was great. Uh, so I did painting there yeah. and lots of drawing and painting and many different approaches. Were you playing music back then? Yeah, I didn't really. I, I started doing um, electronic music at, at Santa Cruz mm-hmm. and they had studio program and synthesizers I could use and multi-tracking. So I did a range of stuff there with different collaborators. I collaborated with one of my painter friends and we, we made a lot of pretty far out stuff together um and when i went to ccac i started having things that were more like bands so i started playing with a drummer and got a rehearsal space and you know songs started to emerge but i didn't really have a didn't really have a clue about how a a song would be written until i was at least 20 Mm -hmm. i think before that i I would think of them more as uh, sounds and feels even though i had a bit of a you know, more conventional music background. I actually started playing music in fourth grade, uh, did trombone throughout school up until through all through high school, and then started doing piano when I was 12 and playing like some classical stuff. So, yeah, I had so a the, sense of the structure, but not like how to do that on my own. Right. The trombone is one of my top two favorite. I can't, it, it goes back and forth between trombone and marimba is my favorite instrument. To play or to listen to? To listen to. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't play trombone, but I love it. It's it's hard, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's got a great tone. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and it's got such thing. a, yeah, it's just like, you know, with a lot of the music that I listen to, you know, whether it's jazz or like Latin jazz, the trombone just has like this sultry kind of, you know, it just eases in and out of notes, which is yeah. different than a lot of, I mean, I grew up playing saxophone. Oh, and then cool. I played some bass clarinet, 
but it's a total different uh-huh. vibe from the you know the trombone. So is is jazz and Latin jazz what you gravitate towards? Uh, well, I kind of love everything. Yeah, you know, but. So I started out, the saxophone was just in a band, you know, I don't know, I even know how it happened. A, a school band or like a rock band? Yeah, in school oh, band. Okay. Yeah. Although that was the moment, if I was going to do it, like Hall & Oates, maybe that's, what, <laughs> you know, like those, that was the era where the saxophone could work in a band, like Huey Lewis was doing well. Yeah. You know, now not so. <laughs> she's not, oh, she's a man-eater. Yeah, that's good yeah. stuff, actually. I mean, oh, I yeah. still, to this day, I love Huey Hall Lewis, and, Oates, and I love yeah. Hall & Oates is amazing. But yeah, so it was... It was just, I don't even know why I started playing saxophone. I think I went to a music store and I thought, that looks cool. And it was yeah. an alto. So I started learning that. And I took piano. I didn't like that because my teacher was weird. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, stuck with the saxophone. And then in high school, it wasn't cool anymore, you know? Right. So I kind of dropped. the 90s? Yeah. Like yeah, the band really thing. Yeah, people really started shedding the sax yeah it wasn't a good look so i dropped that and then i started singing in a band and then i started teaching myself how to play guitar excellent so that's kind of been my instrument effort i mean i still play the sax and bass clarinet occasionally but not that much but uh the guitar is like my instrument now okay great and um you know i locked myself in the room basically for a couple weeks and with a led zeppelin box set and that's Uh how i learned how to play guitar that's a real touchstone i hear um people talk about the box set in particular, yeah. not just the album. I, I, I did buy the box set, but I already had most of the albums. So see, I didn't have, yeah, I didn't have them. Yeah, I got my. I, mean, I, I dubbed them or whatever. But, yeah, but it was like this. Wow, this is the box set, but it didn't even have all the stuff. Like, yeah, I know they, they <laughs> like were prolific. Two thirds of it. Yeah, you know, it was some bonus, like two bonus tracks. It only had very little um, vault material. You know? Yeah, yeah, but I got really into the guitar. You know that playing of the guitar. Right. And growing up, my dad was big into Motown, so I listened oh, wow. to that all the time. Yeah. But that was kind of, you know how people grow up listening to things and it gets kind of buried because, uh-huh. oh, that's what your parents listen to and uh-huh. you don't think about it. And then when you get older, you hear it again kind of in a new way and you, you're like, oh, yeah. yeah, like it resonates with your youth in a way. Yeah. I so mean, I, that, yeah. that was for me, you know. Motown. Yeah, like I think that's how I got into jazz and how I got into... I just started getting into all kinds of... At a certain point, I figured out there's a history to music and it's really interesting. And I just went back into time and, and went through these different genres. And, uh-huh. and to this day, you know, I still love digging around for new things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think about that, you know, imprinting of, of uh, certain music from when you're, when you're younger. For me, I guess the record that I still listen to on a regular basis is Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, mm-hmm. which came out probably you know two years before i was born or something like that but it was played a lot in the house or in the car when i was a baby and um you know it's a very adult album and so you know it took me years to really understand what he was talking (laughs) about but i still just the sound of it is so comforting i just put that on it's just like putting on a warm blanket and i think it's his best record honestly i don't think there's a bum track on it yeah yeah i have that experience with uh marvin gay what's going on that album's great i mean i I, I don't even listen to it that much. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's almost it's it's almost too strong or yeah. something. But I, I love it. I, I love that it's cyclical that he brings back the first track yeah. at the end of it. Um and that it's just it's like it kinda goes in and out of different sounds and it, it's a you know, it's a concept album on one hand, but it's also a song cycle. Yeah. Which I, I think the same thing is true of, of, of pet sounds. You know? Yeah. 
And yeah. that, that to me relates to some of the stuff I've been getting into more recently, like these like German leader, like uh, Mahler would write these leader, like these art songs, mm-hmm. or like operatic songs. And he has like the songs of a wayfarer, and that's like a set of five or six songs that kind of go together. And yeah. um, actually this newest painting is uh, based on one of his song cycles that he developed into sort of a new form, which he called a song symphony. And uh-huh. it's called Das Lied von der Erde, which is the song of the earth. Mm-hmm. And um, he was taking um, ancient Chinese poems, which had been adapted into German by a German poet, and then he adapted those into lyrics and music. And then uh, I took English versions of that, and I'm adapting it into a painting. Um, but it, it has a thematic coherence, and it's it's not an opera, but it sounds like one. There's no plot, you know. There's yeah. no set. There's no costumes. But uh, you know, it begins and ends and has a cyclical kind of feel to it yeah that i feel like not to play the old guy card but it's not the same anymore with that because that marvin gay record is it really does complete itself and it works back in you know it's it's kind of yeah this looping endless thing yeah. and also listening to it on vinyl yeah. there's that dynamic of the break and then flipping it over sure. there's always a side one and side two dynamic right that i think's gone yeah. well it's like much. two acts you yeah know? and that to me goes back to like plays or opera yeah and that can happen, I don't know how you feel about when you're showing your work uh-huh. uh, in a space, if With you have room. like the back space or the size of the yeah. room, and it's really interesting to think about you know, how you orchestrate the works in the space. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that Yeah, now. Yeah, I, I, for the last show I did, I definitely thought a lot about having it be a coherent body of work, you yeah. know where they can also stand on their own. I mean, there's difference whereas like there's certain Pink Floyd tracks where the sound is continuous into them. If you hear one out of context, it's like a jarring you know, yeah. cut. Whereas there's other people that write songs that stand on their own, but could also factor into, you know, the context of an album. Yeah. That's like Dark Side of the Moon. When that money hits, yeah, you need that, that build. Into, yeah. you know right and there's there's certain songs like that in the records I love those records that just bleed in and out of each track yeah it's such an interesting idea you know to pull that off it cannot be easy um yeah so when you're working in a space I mean your your paintings are very specific or a lot of them are very specific to the subject right there's like this subject of if it's a portrait of Nina Simone and then you have maybe lyrics from her you know, yes. it's a very specific thing. Is this a little more... Because this is less referential to the figure, obviously. Right. Yeah, the, the new ones are are intentionally not figurative, and some of them are landscapes, and some of them are, are patterns that are created by, you know, principles or, um, I guess you could say rules, but I guess I'm not totally fond of that word for mm-hmm. these. But even the ones that aren't literally landscapes have a landscape aspect to them. Um, and that's getting back to some of these pieces I did before I did the portraits, something like some of the pieces I did for the smile body of work that I did. Mm-hmm. But this has, you know, a, a lot more color and the, the text is more filled in than it was in those pieces. Um, and in what, this new one, the Song of the Earth one, I'm um, starting and ending uh, also with, you know, a nod to that cyclical thing we talked about yeah. with a, a pattern based um palette and then it merges into something that is actually depicting a landscape though it's quite abstract i was gonna say because it looks like the green up here could be treetops and this almost looks like fire it's almost like you imagine 
you know, aspects of the landscape, but it's not literal. Whereas the tree ones, I think you, you see the trees in it, yeah. but it still feels like it's being filtered through something. Right. You know, which it, and it doesn't, for me, it doesn't really reference the pic, the pixel visually, you right. know what I mean? Because they are chunks. So there is a sort of breaking down of it, but I like the fact that the breakdown isn't specific in the size. It's basic, the, it's related to the words. Uh-huh. So it feels just intrinsic to the process and to, it's almost like the lyrics are, and the words are filtering out the image in a way. Right. So that's like a system that you've, or I don't know if you'd call it a system, but that's, you know, something you've created to kind of filter through these images. Yeah, process. So yeah. in a sense, yeah, you could put, put the image through the process and it comes out a certain way. Um, do you ever work, like say on this painting do you ever work the color first and then relate the words to that color or is it kind of you're like are you working off of it in a sense or is it completely planned no i mean this i i do plan out where the letters are going to be certain colors Mm -hmm. um but i'm definitely the color is not something like a systematic you know this purple equals this because of this content Um, but it's more of a feeling that I have it's an intuitive response to the um, source material and is it does it feel more free in a way than when you're limited to the face or the the image of a figure well some of those and you mentioned the Nina Simone one um, there were aspects of the stage lighting that had a certain atmosphere that Mm -hmm. I was really attracted to Um, and with a lot of these things I ended up thinking about experiencing Rothko paintings yeah. and I know my work doesn't look much like that at all but right. it's that feeling that you get from color and I can see that in one of those paintings or in a sunset or in certain types of stage lighting and with that one I got very specific because I heard a particular version of, of one of her songs uh, Nina Simone here mm-hmm. and it had an ad-lib section and the way the particular lights on her face was giving it this blue quality and so I actually uh, f- took a freeze frame of that performance and then yeah. transcribed the additional lyrics she had done. The song was called, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. And so, so I was, that was a fairly direct response to the, the color and light of the, um, uh, of the film. And I, I, sometimes I might have been attracted to doing it because of that. Mm-hmm. And I like it when it can be unnaturalistic without it seeming... Like photoshopped or something like that. Like yeah, it's it's natural, but it's colored light, so it's not really natural, but it's not necessarily processed. Um, with some of these new ones, I'm not necessarily thinking about a color sensibility in terms of having a taste in color or mm-hmm. colors I like, which I think I, I often thought of color that way. Yeah, and it's a little bit more. Uh, straightforward and scientific. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, with this one, where the the letters get larger towards the center and smaller, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go from um, light to dark uh, with red as they get larger and then back. But then I thought, okay, well, I'll also increase the saturation. And and then the third thought was, well, one color is not enough, so I'm just going to intercut it with its complement, and that's going to do the same thing, except it's going to go from dark to light, yeah. but also increase the saturation. However, the base color is only going from dark to light, so it's asymmetrical, but the rest of the painting is symmetrical. You know, it, it probably doesn't help to describe this without seeing it, but but it's these these types of decisions that that yeah. created that palette, and I was I was really satisfied. So in a way, it's like a solid kind of decision making, where right. you have these variables, and you go, well, this one goes this way. You kind of figure out what your variables are, and then I you know 
made the other one that followed it, which instead of going from small to large and back, only went from large to small. And then I thought, yeah. well, this could be a, my whole new way of working. But I said, no, I want to keep trying <laughs> other things. Yeah. So. No, it's nice to see them in relation to each other, too. Oh, like okay. the, the vibration that's going on in the middle there, yeah. where it kind of calms down, almost like in a, a view of a sunset. Right. Like if I'm looking off in the sky right now and see those two giant helicopters that are flying over the city. Yeah. <laughs> that's ominous. Um, but as you get closer to the horizon line, it calms down and things get smaller and right. further away and almost dissipate. But, but there's a clarity to it there. And I love that the stuff that's coming at you in the front in the middle is vibrating and kind of aggressive uh-huh you know, it's Thanks. it's interesting how many different variables you have because you think oh that's text right and color that's pretty simple right, right. well there's a million different ways yeah. that you can approach those two words you know which is kind of fun to see and in some of these smaller ones are they not studies but you know smaller pieces that aren't quite so you know um you're limited to a certain amount of words that you're using in those do you loosen up in those or try different things? Well, I always feel like working small sometimes is a, it's, there's less at stake. You right. feel like there's less at stake because it's not like a seven foot square painting. So you can try things out on that. Do you do that too with small I, work? I think that's what some of these larger, uh, more color centric pieces are uh, development from. Because oh, when okay. I did, was doing almost nothing but portraits for several years, um, these smaller you know, color-specific ones were ways to to try things out like that. And, yeah. and this new work is a, a deliberate attempt to do something like that that's a little bit more complicated and a little more ambitious in yeah. scale. But it's funny when you think about, like what you said about scale, I, I, I relate to that. But then there's also something about small work where it's more like a precious jewel or something like that, yeah. whereas large is more enveloping and inviting. Um, yeah, I feel that same way. I mean, the the show that I have helped now is all nine by twelve inch paintings. Uh, oh, all all of them, and wow. that's the first time I've ever. I mean, I've made small work. I usually work pretty big. Yeah, but it's the first time that I've only shown that small that's work great. together. So it's a real challenge, you know, because there's. I feel like it's harder to make a really impactful, strong, heavy hitting painting that's small. Right. You know, whereas a giant painting, no matter what, you're like, whoa. It's huge. You know, right. it's, you have that one-to-one body relationship to it that's undeniable, you know? Yeah. And usually with smaller work, there's an intimacy to it because exactly. you're, you're over it. You're working kind of on top of it, you know? It's, it's a different feeling. Right. So um, I kind of like that, the differences between the two. Did you see that Ron Nagel show at Matthew Marks? The, um... He has these tiny, like, little abstract sculptures, but some of them are embedded in the, in the wall. Oh, and, I only saw images of there's it. There's something about when you get that close to something or yeah. when it, it brings you in. And also when it's dense that way, that mm-hmm. it can just be like, oh, my God. Like, it's a whole other world. Yeah. You know, like a diorama or a you know, dollhouse. There's, like, reasons why, you know, we're, we're also attracted to those things. Yeah. As well as the, the grandiose opera. Yeah. yeah. I think that's why uh, Sarah Z, you know, her mm-hmm. work is so amazing. And it affects so many people because there is that delicate nature to it and this inventiveness and this smallness but then they become huge you know so it's almost like this thing that starts off tiny and it just gets out of control and you know it's undeniable like there's something really interesting about that yeah like there's certain work that is just undeniably whether people like it or don't like it there's an undeniable awe to it or something right and she's for me she's one of those people that make work like that yeah 
and the the small to big thing you know when we talk about scale we're talking about the scale of the thing itself but then also the relationship of the objects inside the rectangle yeah. to the whole and that's what's weird about my small ones is the text is usually around the same size mm -hmm. as it is in the big ones it can there's a little bit of variance but then the thought is so like let's see you see a 12 inch one that's got you know just like 10 lines of text mm -hmm. what if i did that eight feet tall with you know foot large this giant letter yeah, yeah. <laughs> i haven't you know, i don't know yeah so well we both did the um the rag and bone, rag and bone yeah so how was that working is that the first time you've no you've done other murals right i did that one and that le actually led to one i did for atlantic records uh, oh nice but the rag and bone one yeah you did two rag and bones right i did yeah, yeah. that's awesome they were great yeah um the uh, the experience what like um what, just sorry, working working outside and then the scale shift because that is a different not only is it a different scale it's a different surface it's right. a different environment you Work, know, working in the rain is lots, oh, it's you raining know, something you every painter should experience <laughs> it's like boot camp before receiving their painting prize <laughs> um, well I started it it's a very you know my paintings my canvases are pretty smooth mm -hmm. and I'm pretty into the surface and you know I like to control things uh, so I showed up to paint the wall and I went to look at it and I thought there's no way I can paint on this wall and then I kind of nudged along and said okay well I'm painting this wall yeah. and then I started painting it and I said there's no way I'm painting this mural it's just too bad I'm just a disgrace because the texture was so extreme that it was making all of my straight lines wobbly yeah. but then I got down off the ladder and realized that you couldn't tell at all away. from the sidewalk and yeah. that, that kind of blew my mind it yeah. was like this magic trick um, so I scaled up my my text from the usual roughly one inch uh, word tiles mm -hmm. up to about two and three quarters, I think, for that one. And I knew I had to have uh, relatively little text as I didn't have much time to paint it. Yeah. Um, so I bumped up the scale and simplified the image. It wasn't too much color. But one of the things about that scale that was really appealing to me was that it became like more like a color field painting, like the kind of stuff that I that I love where you yeah. could, could just be immersed in this color and the, I was using contrasting colors like blue text on top of like a magenta underpainting mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and when you're on one side of the street you're getting it you're seeing the word you're getting a totally different feeling you can't see the whole thing really you know, right. when you're on that sidewalk but then you cross the street and it's a total different story you know things fall into a, a certain space and all that texture that was built up on that wall from like years of weed paste i don't know what it's just got right. a real funky yeah it's really hard because the second one i did was really you know straight clean. lines mm -hmm. and clean and it was not easy to do that on right the wall. so uh but i love that how it looks from you know a block and a half down on houston street well that's the interesting thing you yeah. can get further back from it than you ever would be able to in a gallery or museum yeah and it's a totally different experience and like you're saying everyone should do something like that you know to to see how it's it's real challenge to yes. have your work operate and then the light changes a lot during the day i mean yeah. plein air painters know all about that but yeah and then the social aspect yeah you gotta deal with the people, with people. well really your work i would imagine even more so because you've got these words that yeah. everyone's reading people and wants read to it talk out about. loud yeah. um, a lot of people got it that it was bowie without reading the lyrics somehow some people thought it was obama some people thought it was reagan <laughs> i thought it kind of looked like reagan i mean it was a pretty simplified one so in right. some ways it could be anyone yeah you know? Um, but then there were a lot of people that couldn't see the face, which was really interesting to me. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I would anyone who's colorblind might have a hard time too. Yeah. Like, seeing 
through because you know all those colorblind tests it's all made of circles because when things break down like that right you don't have the edges to yeah. define it and I guess that's also the one of the things I think about is you know the inherent I think the values of those two colors the mm -hmm. blue and the red were pretty close yeah and so when you yeah when you get to things and that's something I try to deliberately do now is get two different hues but the value is the same and then they that's when they start to vibrate quite a bit yeah, I was just talking, I was driving back from Coney Island yesterday. Yeah. And um, they have those, you know those lift billboards that are like run-on sentences? Oh, I don't know. They're I, just haven't them. I haven't read one because I drive. Right. Like, and I don't want to kill myself by right. like trying to, and I thought they need to ban these <laughs> these billboards because there's there shouldn't be, you shouldn't be challenging people. I understand there's passengers, but you right. shouldn't be challenging people to read long paragraphs while they're on the highway. Yeah. <laughs> but But when you see it, <laughs> My point is, there's this urge as a human. Like, if you see, no matter if it's a picture it is making up, you see all those words, you want to read it. Right. Like, you don't want to walk away until you've read the whole thing. I think one thing I've I've heard people have experienced when looking at my stuff is it's they don't want to deal with it. Cause it's like that's too much to read. Oh and yeah. It seems like it's hard to read. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that didn't help that is that in order to get more specific with the image, I started breaking up the color within the word so yeah. you'll see clusters of colors that don't make words at all but if you could start at the the top you could read it from the top you know to the bottom it's all in right. order and one of the things with these pattern ones is i i reintegrated uh the integrity or whatatever or the cohesiveness of the of the words i didn't break up the color within the word for mm -hmm. these so in a way if you were to read them um color coded you could make up your own concrete poetry just following the green words and they yeah. actually be complete words instead of fragments right well i was doing that with that one because up top that light peat like pink yeah i mean it's so easy to just start going it like tuning colors tuning that you know right. reading it that way right i think it's it's just your whereas words. if you were looking the one this one where the where the uh color does break up within the word it's you know you don't really can't really make your own poem that way yeah. so much. I think it's equally equally as interesting because with the figurative ones, you can look at them just as portraits. Right. And a lot of times I will read a little bit of it, but I don't read it in a linear fashion. Uh-huh. Because if it's if it's Billie Holiday or right. Nina, Nina Simone or something, I know those lyrics. Like sure. I heard those songs, so I'm like, oh yeah, those are the lyrics. Right. But I won't sit and read through exactly. Yeah, all and of them. I don't. I don't necessarily want that. Yeah. You know? It's like you take snippets, almost yeah. like when you're listening to a song, you're not listening to every single exactly. word. You, you catch know? certain ones. But the the reason this is interesting is because you're f not forcing the viewer, but you're leading the viewer down the path to create this kind of broken. Uh, poetry right. and, and picking out certain like even sonic elements of words which is kind of nice I wanted to get into a place where it would be visually interesting enough that if you wanted to know about the source material you could but that mm -hmm. it could stand on its own I, I was finding the portraits became a bit heavy uh, on the subject aspect I mean I was presenting subjects that I thought were really interesting and for very specific reasons um, and it became sort of like, you know, oh, I like Richard Pryor one, but can you do Bill Cosby instead? You know, this is, of course, before the scandal. Right. But, and so like when I presented Harry Nielsen, it was almost like an alter ego for mm -hmm. me. He, he's like a cult figure who I thought was under-recognized. And it's almost like, well, if you like the color phenomenon that's happening in this painting or the fact that it's an image made out of words, that's, that's enough for me. And then hopefully... 
that will make you want to like Harry Nilsson. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask is uh, a lot of the musical figures that you paint are really well-known pop stars, like right. popular people. But in gathering, I'm pretty sure you probably go pretty deep into music and know a lot of stuff about different genres. And, you know, how do you weigh out is it that you do want these to sort of resonate with the most amount of people, or is it specifically those are just people that you're interested in their their words and lyrics and their yeah that, their that's image? something I go, I go back and forth on, and sometimes there's there's overlap. I mean, you know, I, like I said, I love the work of Bob Dylan. He's also a cultural icon, you know. But there's other people, you know, like Richard Pryor, who is iconic and well known. But I was finding that most people knew that he had been in Superman 3 and they knew that he had burned himself allegedly freebasing and they didn't know any of his stand-up comedy. They just yeah. knew he was a you know, funny guy. Right. Um, and so that's why I used his 70s stand-up albums as the source for that portrait because I thought it was really you know, pertinent. Um, I thought it was really relevant to today, but yeah. also that it was kind of overlooked work that I thought everyone needs to know. I mean, people in comedy know, but... Right. You know, no, here's why he's known. R- right. This like, is, you know him from these other things, yeah. but this is what got him to the position. Do you know what's going on? Inside? Yeah. And that yeah. was the same thing I do with Robin Williams. Everyone was like, oh, Mrs. Doubtfire died. I can't believe it. Yeah. You know, what a wacky guy. And I was like, no, if you listen to his stand-up, it's dark. You know? Yeah. Although, having said that, um, his best friend, Bobcat Goldthwait, another mm-hmm. favorite comic of mine, specifically said that Williams... Uh, you know, the, the suicide was not necessarily an act of depression. It was because um, he had a form of dementia where he wasn't, he didn't know what he was doing. So yeah, it was like medical. Yeah. Yeah, there was an issue with that. Yeah, so do you ever think about, or maybe you have, I mean, I haven't seen every piece you've done. So have you thought about, you know, doing more obscure people at times? Or I, I have. Part of, and part of why I'm doing these non-portrait ones is maybe because of that mm-hmm. dilemma. Um and I've done you know certain pieces for commissions, like the Atlantic Records one was of their founder Ahmed mm-hmm. Erdogan. But I was happy to do that because he's just such a legend. I yeah. know it was such a major, crazy project. It's like a two-story mural in the heart of their headquarters, and it used like 110 Atlantic Records songs That's cool. from the 40s until now. I've so, seen a picture of that. Oh, cool. Did you? How long did it take you to do that? That was a long project. Um, yeah. That was like seven weeks of 60-hour weeks with two full-time assistants. Jeez. So I was, a real, was kind of married to it for a while. Yeah. That's a big project. Yeah. But an amazing kind of... It's uh, almost a document, like a historical document in a way, too, you know? Yeah. It's like your, your artwork, but at the same time, it's talking about all this music and, you know... It, it seemed it was a really good fit. You know? Yeah. I was really honored and happy to do that um he passed away you know several years ago yeah. um, but they were moving into their this new building they had built and i was able to actually go and see his old office that they had kept just the way it was when he passed away mm-hmm. and i went in there so in a sense i almost felt like i was you know um by painting him I, it was like a conduit of his you know uh, at least of his legacy if yeah. not his spirit yeah definitely you know i was thinking about too about that um uh, working with people who may be a little less known is I noticed in here Sun Ra's name pop up, but then it's Sun Ray, uh, Sun's right. Rays. 
but it was really interesting to me because I saw Sun Ra. Okay, so that that's one of those words where it gets yeah where it gets broken on the word. That's cool. I I didn't actually see that. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about, right? Like I didn't even the apostrophe s on sun's rays. Like sure. I, yeah, yeah. The way that it's painted, the sun and the raw pop out more than sun's raw. Right. Like your brain, kind of edits that s out, or for right. me it did. And uh, he's one of those people that I think are so amazing and yeah. so interesting. That would be a great portrait. But um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I'm sure the majority of people don't know who Sun Ra is. Right. It's interesting with, with instrumental players, too, um, the ways that you can, you know, the kind of text you can find. I mean, we're like with like Miles. I did a small portrait of Miles over mm-hmm. there. It's actually you know, pretty hard to tell that it's him, but it, it's from his autobiography. Yeah, the blue one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good. Did you read the, was kind of blue? Um, his is just called Miles. No, but there was the oh, book about no. the uh, recording of Oh of no, Kinda Blue. No, that sounds awesome. Yeah, and there's uh, the Coltrane one too. I love Supreme. Okay, where it talks about so the case studies of the. He just talks about the process of like because those are two. Is it one of those thirty-three and a third books? Do you know those books? Mm, I don't. They're each dedicated to an album, but they're only like a hundred pages long. Oh no, I think these are little. These were more involved. Oh wow. Yeah, but they're great records yeah i mean the coltrane the love supreme you know those huge records just, yeah um shaped so much music that came after it and it's really interesting to sort of you know hear about the process of it front to back you know? yeah yeah so have you um is jazz something that you were really into i i um I, I love it and I, I you know I listen to a lot of the records I wouldn't say that I'm you know uh, like a jazz buff you know mm-hmm. I've seen seen a fair amount of it I love Coltrane and Miles Davis those are probably you know two of my favorite artists yeah um, and I never was able to uh, I don't have jazz chops <laughs> in terms yeah. of like piano playing did you um did you see that movie I haven't seen it yet the Miles one yeah no there's the Chet Baker one too I want to I really want to see that too yeah yeah, I've read so much about both of them. You yeah, know? and um, to see how it's portrayed on on screen. But I did re- uh, hear an interview with Ethan Hawke, and it seemed like he really um, got into he, it. Yeah, he yeah. was really into it, and he knew a lot about you know Chet and his history, and did all the research. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm sure it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think they talk about Chet Baker as being kind of absent, like he's that's uh, and that's maybe what cool is is yeah. not being there. What it's interesting with the the timeline, um, you know, like you know, Coltrane's already passed away when Miles is about to embark on what some people think is his most fruitful period. I yeah, mean, just like a constantly evolving artist. So you, let's say you wanted to go see yeah. him in the '70s and you thought he was going to be playing bebop, you weren't going to get that. Yeah, <laughs> there was yeah. no playing of the hits. There was no looking back. No, I think of him as like Picasso. Yeah, the more you see it, the more you realize how good it is, and the more other art you see when you come back to it. I mean, I was surprised by one. Um, at the new Met Breuer, um, the, the, I think it's one of the kind of you know so-called intentionally unfinished ones. Mm-hmm. He's showing the process and almost it looks like an etching because has these these cross hatching lines. Yeah, it just knocked me out. You know, yeah. I'd seen it before, but I, but there but then there's some of the more um, bold moves of Picasso attracted me as a as a young man, mm-hmm. and now it's other aspects that just I'm so impressed by. Yeah. And Miles did the same thing. I yeah. mean, he just was refused to to stop at any given moment. You know. What do you think of the? Have you ever delved into the '80s stuff? There's yeah. there's the You're Under Arrest album where he's playing time after time, and uh, 
one of the human it was a human emotion one of the michael jackson songs um, human nature yeah yeah i've i've a little questionable maybe well i've listened to all that i think yeah. the context of it you have to see it in a certain context i yeah. guess i remember when i first heard weather report uh-huh and people were talking about oh this is a cool fusion right and then i listened to it and I was, this is cheesy this is terrible <laughs> right and then I kind of came back because I used to be a jazz DJ and uh-huh. you know I've, I've really a jazz DJ now that's something you don't hear every day yeah when I was that's an undergrad awesome. I was a jazz DJ and I got really into jazz yeah and um, you come around to it and then you hear other music more contemporary music that's been influenced by that right and then you go back to it and I think the stuff you love that was a product of it um, mutes out some of the cheese right <laughs> You know what I mean? And and kind of like you can see it for what it was at that given moment. Right. Like sometimes I'll play in my classes, like if I have a you know, studio class, um, I'll play for the students, you know, some like 70s prog jazz stuff, you know, like, like some of that Herbie Hancock thrust. Oh, yeah. And like, or, yeah, just stuff that's a little, you know, it's kind of like a hybrid of like funk, jazz, fusion, and but it's, it's, there's nothing really like it. But they just call it smooth jazz. Like, they don't understand. Oh, it. but it, it can be the instruments, too. I remember yeah. when I started playing the Rhodes, uh, and that was, like, a, you know, featured pretty prominently in, in my band. You know, I'd play it, you know, for, like, my brother or whatever, and he'd say, oh, that sounds so 70s, you know? Yeah. Because you hear there's, like, Daniel, Elton John, or, like, certain um, Billy Joel song for the Rhodes is in there. It just, and there's something about that kind of slick professional Broadway kind of songwriting yeah. with the roads that just oozes bad taste but then you also re- you hear listen more and then you realize wait this instrument's on everything yeah it's because um, it sounds so good <laughs> right. but it could also sound so cheesy yeah it's, it's, it's the context I guess yeah by itself I mean I'm I, I love that instrument yeah. you know but yeah I guess if you if you've if you don't have that historical context to it I think sometimes that neutralizes your initial reaction to certain things whether it's art or you know whether it's yeah uh, and so and i guess it can do the reverse too you know like um what is it uh like surat there's that recent remember people were going or no no it wasn't surat it was renoir people, people love to hate renoir yeah they yeah. were just it was a like new you find thing any any value in that yeah. yeah but i mean if you look at it even if you're not into his stuff like I was at the Guggenheim in the permanent collection part. Right. There were a couple of paintings. I'm like, these are really good. Oh paintings. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's you know, it's not famous by accident. Yeah. Know? But yeah, but with the Miles thing in particular, I mean, he retired, so it was almost like my work, you know, I, I has run its course. Yeah. But I also heard he was really heavily battled with drug addiction at that point. Yeah. But it was just gone for like at least five years, right? And then came back in the '80s with what you would have to say is a more commercial sound yeah. you know, than what he left us with in the mid-70s. It's really interesting, too, the dynamic between those two careers, between Miles and Chet, because uh-huh. he was just the man on the scene, the looks, and then the, the voice was kind of, you know, it was a very niche kind of thing. He uh-huh. was like this heartthrob, like singer, player. Yeah. And then, you know, he got his teeth knocked out and they never sounded the same and it was just kind of like a one note that he hit but he did it really well right you know what i mean and that's forever you know if you want that kind of song and that there's nothing like chet baker Uh you know so it's impactful but in a different way it's just that one 
You know, no, it's right. interesting to think about artists like that too, because some artists will have a specific look and they just work in this one avenue and right. really investigate it. Whereas other people are just all over the place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or following the questions the work asks them, you know, yeah. to a yeah. certain place. Definitely. I mean, do you feel in the studio that kind of, because you, you do have a specific kind of connection to music and to language. Yes. That, um, do you feel that's really the driving force of the way you think visually? The, the kind of uh, evolution or f- following the work or about or just or that more being the source material? More of like, well, maybe not just explicitly the source material, but the, the influence of like what you want to sort of create visually is being so related to sonic things. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, there's one sense where you could say that the you know color is a substitute for sound, mm-hmm. and music and my paintings both have words, but I'm not sure if that analogy completely holds up. Um, the question of influence, I'm not, I'm not really sure if 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 it would be something that I saw a visual artwork that made me want to do an artwork that looked like that. Yeah, it's more about being inspired by depth of feeling mm-hmm. so I tend to gravitate towards things not that just not that only don't look like what I do but it does, I don't really have any you know many restrictions on the types of visual art that I like yeah and I suppose it's more uh, more of a feeling um, but I do I don't I don't feel that I'm doing something that's like um, I feel very tied to the history of painting. I don't feel like I'm I'm the guy, the musician that started to paint or something like right, that, or, yeah. or that it's like a a fringe thing where it's like music paintings, like yeah. some new novelty development. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's really nice to see these two in relationship to, you know, the figurative work because right. this is it. It just sees the other side of the coin, you know, where it's it's talking about a similar feeling but it's not framed within the image, even though I like those images right. as well. But it's nice to see both sides of it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Without the sort of visual, um, you know, direct lineage of who that those words are coming from and then right. the image of them and then those words. But this is, there's a little separation there too. It's almost like abstraction versus representation. Right. But it's all really the same thing. Yeah, and one one constant has been these, these word blocks mm-hmm. that you know, have evolved over 10 years. They started very loose and become more, you know, inevitably more streamlined and not necessarily intentionally, almost to carry more color or just my hand's desire to perfect it. And these, the small ones up there, or the, the one in the middle, and I'll post, if it's okay with you, oh, I'll yeah. post images of these so people can see them. But the, the one with some of the backwards letters, are yeah. you playing around just with formal elements of the, how the text is working in that? Yeah, well, it, it's, um, I'm going, changing directions to, to lead you um, where, you're supposed to, where you're supposed to go. So it'll be going across one way and then it starts um, going backwards mm-hmm. so that you can follow it that way. And then it's you know, going in and out and you know, l- layered. Um, kind of a wormhole yeah it's interesting i can't help but wonder if there's so many words that are piled up that it becomes abstract in a way to where you can't read the lyrics anymore and they become their own sounds you know what i mean yeah because you're doing that in a sense here too where certain words fade in and out of consciousness almost right it's really great when you look at work and you're 
coming up with ideas. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like there's so many ways that you can. It's really interesting. Like there's so many avenues that these can take and that you're exploring. One thing that's strange about the way I work is is that it goes from t uh, top to bottom. So. I while I'm working on it, I really want to see what the painting is going to look like. And then yeah. obviously I go back in and work on it some more once it's all on there. But mm -hmm. a lot of painters can have this general to specific kind of approach where they can get most of the canvas covered with shapes that yeah. might be refined a great deal over the course of the process. Right. But with me, I'm spending a huge amount of time just trying to get the whole thing on there. Um, and... I don't know. It's both a drive and, and um, like a, in a way, a limitation. It's rigor, you know, because we all, as a, when you're making a painting, you can't wait. I don't know how you feel about it. There's like these stages in it. Mm -hmm. At least for me, it's where you start it off and it's kind of the blank canvas. And then you're drawing things out or exploring what it's going to be. And there's that excitement. And then you get into painting it. And you're just in that initial stages that you're talking about where it's kind of like labor, like you're not seeing anything right. yet. And then it's, you finally hit a certain point to where you could start to see things taking shape. And it's such an exciting time that like fuels the rest of the painting. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'd imagine you have a slightly more drawn out laborious process to that if you're going, you know, in a linear fashion. Right. And like moving your way down. Yeah, but, but then during that part, it can be very satisfying to just lose yourself in the in the act of painting yeah. all the letters. Then you step back and you're like, whoa. Right. And so it, it's it's a long haul, and it's a, it's a slow burn kind of satisfaction. Yeah. But it keeps you wanting to, you know, feeling, you know, eager to, to get to work on it. Yeah. The first one I did that where I intentionally made an image, it was just a smiling mouth, like a cartoon smile. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember just feeling like a fever, like I had, like just wanting to get back to the studio every day to to see it come to life. Yeah, you know? yeah. And when as I was doing that, I was thinking that you know I was so excited that I could potentially maybe make a portrait. It took me a few, you know, it took me several more months before I figured out how to do that. And at first, mm -hmm. I was just kind of winging it. I had no idea how to how I would go about doing that. And then I, I ended up refine my own process yeah it's such a great feeling when you start working on something you just can't wait to work on it and finish it yeah you know? i feel like it's like certain aspects of being an artist is being like a kid being creative as a kid yeah you're gaining back some of that youthful exploration you sure know? and when you were you know a kid and you just get that lego set or something that's the, that's the one you don't want to do you don't want to eat yeah you don't want to do anything until you finish building it, you know? Right. And I feel that way about, it's funny because I'm close with a lot of people who are real foodies, you know, they uh -huh. love food. And I always feel like food, well, maybe less so recently as I get older, but when I was younger, I, it was just fuel. Uh -huh. Like I just want to get it over with, eat whatever, uh -huh. and then go back to work and be in the studio, you know? And uh, I think that's one of the beauty beauties of being an artist is that you just get to have this this kind of like kid-like anticipation of finishing something, uh -huh. you know, that's kind of perk. I mean, it's hard and it goes through ups and downs, but the, the process is so great. You know? And then w would you relate that to, I mean, you were saying that as a kid that you um, were less interested in food, but now you appreciate it more like an artwork or, or no? Or yeah, just, probably. I mean, because when I cook, I, I kind of think of it as painting, you know? Yeah. 
um, you know, I used to use kind of cheap materials with paintings a yeah. long time ago. And then I realized, well, this is the thing that I'm making. <laughs> so, like, you, why would you, you know, want to use something bad to yeah. make the thing you're making? And so I started, I used to buy, like, the cheapest lentils I could, you know. Yeah. Because why not? There's right. lentils. I'm like, well, wait, maybe if I use better ones or maybe if I, like, learn a few things about how I might do this better, you know, it's really interesting. You know, you're putting things together and... Yeah, I see a connection there. Yeah. That comes with age. You, you you maybe lose a little immediacy, but you gain right. a little bit of a bigger picture thing right. going on. You know when, but I think most students have that. Where you know, I used to use fifty cent. I would go to the craft store and get those fifty cent uh, little mini bottles oh, of yeah. craft paint, right? And I would use that just because it was cheap. Sure. You know, I wasn't gonna go out and buy really nice paint. Right. I afford it. And uh, but yeah, you get to the point where you're like, wait a minute. Everything's starting to look the same, and it looks a specific right. way. Why is that? But there's also some, I guess, suppose something to be said for intentionally using that because it has a certain quality that you can't get in the good stuff. You yeah. know, like when the Beastie Boys or whatever supposedly used the cheapest microphone they could find at Radio Shack because it gave it a certain quality. Yeah. That's a, there's a difference between intentionally and knowingly going for a quality that the cheap stuff has. Right. You know? Yeah, like the crappy <laughs> amp that gives you the fuzz that no other amp will give right. you. But, you know, not like the amp that was like the hand-me-down that you're using just because it was free and it doesn't really sound that good that's one of the ways i think about paint though is some of the pigments have their own inherent qualities and so sometimes with these monochrome base paintings that i do i want to just focus on the way that that pigment feels yeah yeah it's such a touch experience you know it's it really takes a long time i think to really get the feel for those things you know even yeah. in, in, in playing the same thing with understanding music or listening to it it's like as you experience more and more you bring all those experiences to the process and to your appreciation of everything else it's kind of nice yeah and i guess you were you were touching on it earlier when you were talking about the kind of gradations that i use in the underpaintings mm-hmm. and with this newer one how it kind of builds to uh, the more saturated color in the middle I, I feel that as a kind of hum or like a, almost like a throb of sound yeah um, that was, I think that specific word was used to describe my bloody valentine mm-hmm. and the, the, the way they just have this kind of cloud of, of really saturated sound I, yeah I, that's something one of the you know synesthesia things that I that I'm going for yeah it's and it's such a beautiful peaceful um, depth when you listen to it recorded, but mm-hmm. live it is the loudest, <laughs> most Have aggressive. It was the loudest show I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, that's what they're known for. It was right? painful. I never, I never did did go. Yeah, I didn't really know them that well. Right. Like I, I knew like Ride and Lush and bands okay. like that. Yeah. And then you know, oh, you gotta guess, go see My Bloody Valentine, and it was just an oral assault. Right. Know? Of like ear bleeding levels. So is that is that is that aggressive? I mean, because the records are so beautiful. Yeah, know, live I, it's it's painful. Right. Maybe it was they, painful. Yeah, I wonder about that relationship with the audience. You know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a total different. Like hearing a Loveless, it was a totally different experience than seeing them live. Right. You just want to go into the next room. It's almost. I remember going into the next room. Right. Like outside the main doors, and it was the, the perfect place. It's tolerable. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean that record though is made of those tremendously loud guitars, yeah. but it's but it's you know dialed down for home consumption. Yeah, I suppose you could wear earplugs. There's something they do in their set, which they were doing a little bit on the the recent record, where it's this super repetitive passages, mm-hmm. but then within I think they do it for like a half an hour live, but then within that monotony, you start to your brain starts to find the uh, irregularities. Yeah. 
and that's something like I respond to. Yeah, it's especially really with these new ones where they're they are kind of not one note, but they're they're um, evenly distributed. You know, it's like an yeah. all over painting, like a Pollock or something like that. Mm-hmm. But then you you see the cloud, and then you start to find the idiosyncrasies within it. Yeah, I love that kind of long repetitive sort of rhythmic things that slowly mutate over time. Whether it's something like you know Philip Glass or right. like uh, Zakir Hussain, like things like uh-huh. that that are just percussive that slowly change over time, you know. Yeah, and it, your, your your perception of time is, is changing, and then you start to realize that you know what is time. Right? Yeah, well, and it's what happens in the studio because you it's perfect music for working because right. it, you get lost in it. You know, just like no one can really know what it's like to get lost in painting a painting until you do it. You know what I mean? Right. But you just go to some other place where you're in that process and you kind of turn everything off, it, ideally, you know, and you just get lost in that, that kind of uh, meditative. It's like, I think it's like meditative at a certain point. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that a lot of, you know, visual or you know, music work that I respond to has is that it, 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 it does ask questions about the human condition or about perception about what it is to be alive whether it's through color or you know my aim is if i'm making images out of words what does that do to your brain you yeah. know your brain is being used in two different ways at once and maybe that starts to you know open some doors for the for the viewer for the audience yeah definitely that's that's like a a real benefit you know or something that can really take you past that common existence you know like the day-to-day yeah which is a wonderful thing if you can do it right you know, i think many people get lost in that day-to-day and struggle with it and yeah you know being an artist is a real struggle but the one thing that's nice is you get out of that day-to-day to a certain extent yeah you know, which is uh i think can be really healthy you know so what do you have coming up what are you working i'm on? actually going to be painting a mural next week oh um, nice here for, yeah in, the city? In, in brooklyn uh, at the wyeth hotel Oh yeah, nice. And uh, it won't be permanent, but it'll be up for three months. Mm-hmm. And it's in uh, conjunction with they celebrate um, the Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a big uh, gala for it, and so I'll be doing Freddie Mercury nice. um, using two lyrics to two songs. So, where is it going to be? In inside? Yeah, in the lobby. Mm-hmm. So where the glass is there, will you be able to see it there, or is it kind of on the side? There, when you walk down towards the elevator, okay, be on yeah. The, back wall so that'll be nice because you can have a you'll be able to get pretty far back from it yeah that's great yeah i'm excited for that and so that so and i'm also working towards a show in october at brayton volume nice um and so this body of work which is the non-portrait work i may have a a portrait or two in the show um Mm -hmm. is is going you know following this new idea but then there's you know if it's a mural people want a portrait yeah Cool. That sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks for letting me over. Of course. Thanks for coming. See all this. It's been really great. Thank you. All right. Thanks.